And if the rest of us could turn our Bibles to the book of John, Gospel of John, chapter 4, just, I'm really excited about this sermon because it's called When Times Get Desperate. And, and it's about how God uses different things to draw us to himself. And, and then there's this pattern that develops. A, we say a prayer, and he gives a promise. And how do we act on that promise? So uh, we start with the background. Now, I got to do this juggling act again. Our other mic is not working, and I don't have borrow mic stand or yeah so much better he doesn't need it it's just okay so John chapter 4 so beginning in verse uh, 43 now after the two days he or Jesus d departed from there and went to Galilee but Jesus himself testified that a prophet uh, has no honor in his home country so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did to Jerusalem at the feast, and they also had gone to the feast. So they saw him cleanse the temple. Remember how crazy that was? How he made a, a whip and just drove everybody out and stuff, and he did other signs that were going, this guy's legit. This guy does stuff that everybody else is afraid to do. He cleansed the temple that should have been done years ago, and so they like him. So here's the background. Remember, we had just covered the woman at the well. And so he had spent these last two days in Samaria after talking to the woman at the well. Remember, he said, he, he addressed her, had a word of knowledge for her. She said, I'm not married. Yeah, technically I'm not, but you've been married and divorced several times and now you're living in sexual sin. And then she was used to go back to the city of Samaria and went over the entire city. Now he's, then he tells his disciples, remember he sent them into the town to, to get lunch. And so they're guys, they got lunch on the brain. They're not thinking of evangelism. They're not thinking of, hey, let's plant some seeds. They're thinking of, let's fill our tummy. So Jesus said, don't give me this, in four months we'll start evangelism. He goes, look around you. There's all kinds of opportunities right now. Meaning, you passed by that woman. She was coming out of the village. You were going in, and you, all you did was avoid her rather than think, I bet she's the key to win over the entire city. And, and so you want to go, who's the Samaritan woman in my life? Who's that person, the next one I get to witness to, who might have a myriad of aunties and uncles and cousins and friends that, who can win over half a Haleiwa? Then he said, look, you went into the, or he implied, you went into that city and all you're thinking about is food and, and these unclean Samaritans, you'd never dream that they're ripe for the gospel. There's all kinds of opportunities. You just missed it. You went in there, thought of your belly and got out. And yet minutes later, the entire city is given over to Jesus Christ. Then he says this interesting thing, a prophet has no honor in his own country. He has honor elsewhere where people don't know him. Like growing up, I was his third grade teacher. I was his neighbor. He, he painted my, my gate or whatever. They, oh, some people know him too well. He goes, no, he's, he's without honor in his hometown because they know him so well. 
It's interesting, for the Samaritans, last week, he had no trouble winning them over. He didn't even use a miracle. But now, this week, he's got, he's got a much harder time with those who thought that they knew him. So this is it. When they, when they don't treat you with honor and you feel disrespected, you feel like you're not appreciated, what do you do? How, what's your MO when you're not appreciated? When people don't say thank you? You ever hold the door open for five people in a row and none of them say anything? Okay, you do it unto the Lord, it's okay. But here, what do you do when you're not feeling appreciated? Jesus just pressed on. He said, no, I'm gonna, I wanna win them over. I'm having all kinds of fun up here, sorry. All right, so he says a prophet is without honor in his own country. Do you think, they thought, I know all about Jesus. I know everything there is to know about him. And so consequently, they'd put a low ceiling on his life. Now this is how it applies to us. You might think, I know everything there is to know about my kids. And you might have put a low ceiling on them without even meaning to. And you might say, you know what, kid, you shouldn't even try that. You're going to fail. Oh. Rather than, see, I was, my mom was literally a cheerleader. She and my dad were, were high school sweethearts. My dad was this super basketball player, football, baseball. He had like 12 letters when he graduated high school. She was the cheerleader. This is a small town in upstate New York. So she has two scrapbooks full of uh, newspaper clippings about my dad. She's a built-in cheerleader. So I grew up having a cheerleader for a mom, but a lot of people don't. They have a stinker for a mom. They have someone, ah, they put low ceilings on them. No low ceilings. So Jesus said, oh, I'm going there anyway, even though they don't appreciate me. So let's read the rest of chapter four, uh, be beginning here in verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman, so this is a high muckamucka guy. Certain nobleman. It's interesting, in Samaria, it was a woman caught in sin on one end of the spectrum. Now it's a guy who's up there, certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was out of, uh, out of Judea and in Galilee, that's 20 miles away, he went to him and implored him, begged him, come down and heal his son, for he was to the point of death. Then Jesus said, look at this rebuke. Unless you people have uh, or see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. What? The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus said to him, go your way, your, your son lives. That's all it took. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And, and now as he was going down, his servants met him and, and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour that he got better, and they said to him, oh, yesterday about the seventh hour, about one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left. So the father knew it was the same hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed, notice this, and the whole household. That's more than just his family. This is again the second sign Jesus did when he come out of Galilee into, I'm, I'm sorry, out of Judea into Galilee. So this is what's happening. Okay, we're talking, this is 
could have been called a prayer and a promise, and we'll see why really soon. We don't know how old this kid was. It doesn't say in particular his age. We just know three things. He was dying. All right, this is serious. This is a fever that will lead to death. We know, secondly, his dad loved him. He had a lot going for him then. And we know that Jesus was only 20 miles away. So here's the dad. You have to understand, I can see him taking off work just to be home with his son. If his son's going to die, he wants to be there. He doesn't want his son to be alone when he exits planet Earth. And so he makes this crazy decision. I'm going to leave my son's deathbed, hoping he doesn't die while I'm gone. I'm going to try and find this Jesus and try to talk him into going out of his way 20 miles to heal my son. Now, I, I hate asking for things for me. Maybe you're like that. And I think it's probably pride, okay? Probably pride. But it's, I hate to inconvenience people. But if I'm asking for someone else, I don't mind at all. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, it's not me, it's my son. If it were me, fine, let me die. But it's my kid. Would you come? Now, we're not talking about hop in the Honda and, and drive there. It's 20 miles away. It's about from here to Tripler Hospital. From here on the North Shore to Tripler on the South Shore, either walking or donkey or horse or camel or maybe a horse and buggy. It's a long journey. I'm thinking dust, coughing, uh, heat, whatever. And he's going, no, it's worth it. But I hope my son doesn't die in the meantime. So then this is what happens. He implores Jesus. And maybe your Bible says he begs him. I mean, this is a crazy thing. But look at what his prayer was as opposed to what it's not. He just goes up to Jesus one-on-one -on -one and starts talking. That's the simplicity of prayer. I get to talk to God. God wants to, he actually invites me. We'll see later in Matthew 7 where Jesus goes, ask, actually in the original language, please ask. You've got the king of kings begging you, please ask. I want to answer your prayers. And, and so he's not saying the same thing again and again. We don't know his body position, whether he's kneeling or hands raised or whatever. We just know his heart. Talking one-on-one -on -one to Jesus Lord, come heal my kid. Now, this response is like, where did that come from? You know, you just think, okay, I, I'm not pleading on my part. I'm pleading for my... And all of a sudden, Jesus goes, well, unless you see a sign, you're never going to believe. Wait, what? Wait, what are you talking about? See, in earlier in chapter 2 of John, we read that Jesus had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Kind of scary. He sees right through me. So he could see stuff like, you know, some people just want to get healed and then they're gone for good. Some people just want, Lord, just get me through this financial crisis and I'll never bother you again. And he said, you're just, you're here, you're going through the motions because you just want one thing and then you'll never see you again. So he says this crazy thing. So here's the thing. Go your way, your son lives. That's it? That's all I get. What about a circus? You know, 
Why can't you be more like the guys on TV? They get really loud in the microphone, heavy reverb. There's an organ player, and there's a choir, and it's getting louder and louder. They're, you know, they're stirring up faith. Jesus, uh, you don't sound very convincing. Go ahead, your son's alive. Wait, what? The God who cannot lie makes promises he cannot break. So now, there's no circus atmosphere. It's just a promise from God. Your son is healed. So now, let the wrestling match begin on the dad's part. The dad has a decision to make, and so do we when we pray and God gives a promise. His decision is, am I going to doubt God's promise or am I going to believe? Do you ever place yourself in his, in his slippers? You go, wait a minute, that's it? He's healed, go home. You're not going to come with me? I mean, I have faith. If you go, it, it, that's it. I see myself in this situation like, oh, I, I was thinking there'd be more. But it was just, okay, just go. So he goes. Remember Blackaby, for those of us who did on, in the Ohana groups, the uh, experiencing God, and how Blackaby would say, what this dad does next would tell what he really believes about God. And so when you're praying and God gives you a promise from his word, what you do next determines if you really believe him, really take him at his word. So he goes the 20 miles back home. What do you think he's thinking as he's going this 20 miles? Like, man, I hope this guy's right. I hope I get there in time. I hope this works. And he's just so, to me, he can't get there fast enough. And yet partway home, his servants come. Hey, your son's like, when did he get healed? About one o'clock yesterday. That's exactly when Jesus said he's healed. And so then he believes, he receives that confirmation. He believes his whole household, so these servants who were with him, they all get saved as a result of Jesus healing one person. Now, here's the deal. We call this he was brought to the faith. It's a guy who didn't know Jesus, goes through a crisis, and he bring, it brings him to Jesus, it brings him to faith. Here's the problem. What about those who need to be brought back to the faith? Meaning, does the prayer, the simple prayer and promise still happen for them? Or is this only for first-time believers? So I want to tell you a story about David, King David, the thug. He was a thug at this point in his life. And it covers too many chapters in 2 Samuel, so I'll tell you the gist of it. King David is known for singing, sinning, and being a soldier, right? He wrote a lot of the Psalms. So King David was anointed king by his tribe of Judah. Judah recognized him as king. The other 11 tribes of Israel rejected him as king. So at this point, David is like a type of Jesus Christ, who has been anointed king of kings, if you will. Believers have accepted him. We're like the tribe of Judah, but most of the world has rejected him. So for years, David, seven, seven and a half years, David's running for his life. I don't know what that's like when the entire government is against me, trying to hunt me down, to kill me. That's how David lived for seven and a half years. And after a while, he just gets in survival mode. 
He said, I don't, I don't know, whatever it takes, I got to stay alive. Now he's married, he's got a couple of wives, some kids. So it says, this is wild. In chapter 22, he has a 3D army. Have you ever heard this? It says, whoever was distressed, whoever was in debt, and whoever was discontented came to him. 400 3D army guys with their wives and kids. I'm sorry, that's not the kind of people that I'm attracted to. You know, you're stressed out, you're, you're, you're banked out, and you're bummed out. I, you know, that's not the, oh, here, let's, how, how are you doing? You don't want to hear how they're doing because they're just going to complain all the time. So there are 400 families. Later on, it becomes 600 distressed, in debt, and, and discontented. So David, at this point in his life, unbelievably feels more comfortable around the enemies of God than he does around the people of God. Have you ever gotten to that point? That's called drifting. When I feel more comfortable with the enemies of God doing the things that they do and just laughing at the people of God and not doing the things that they're doing, that's where David was. So he moves to a place called Ziklag, Z-I-K-L-A-G. Ziklag, it's in southern Judah. Actually, the king of the Philistines gave him the city. He goes, yeah, go stay there. Well, you, what, what are you going to do? There's, what are you doing for work? How are you going to feed yourself? You got 600 families. And that's when he became a thug. He became a man of bloodshed. They would go to different villages and towns and completely obliterate men, women, children, babies. He's a man of bloodshed to the point that God said, you can't build me a temple. You're a man of bloodshed. David, what are you doing? It is despicable. I know you're on survival. I know the government's against you, but now you're not trusting in me anymore. You're in a total backslide. You're more comfortable with God's, God, the, God's enemies than you are with God's people. So then in this chapter, chapter 30, or chapter 29, he actually joins forces with the Philistines. These are the bitter enemies of the Jews. He says, can I fight with you against my people? The king goes, man, you're like an angel in my sight. You can do anything. The other army, the Philistine army goes, no way. This guy, this, he's going to turn against us mid-battle and get him out of here. So if you're picturing this right, they had left Ziklag and gone 25 miles north, northwest to the city of the Philistines. They had left their wives and families unprotected. It's a dangerous thing for a dad to do. And while they were gone, three, 25 miles, the Amalekites attacked. Well, the Amalekites are a type of the flesh, that it's always in that Romans 7, I want to do good, but man, I end up doing bad. That's the Amalekite cycle, where it's just, oh, man, if it wasn't for them, I could do something for God. And so... The Amalekites attack, capture, kidnap all the wives and children and burn the city, and they're gone. So David comes back with his 600 guys. Okay, you following me? 
I've never ridden a horse for 25 miles. I think they're tired. I, I think they're sweaty. I think, oh, I can't wait to see my kids. I, yeah, I bet they come running out and sit in and greet us, all 600 of them. This is going to be great. And from a distance, they go, is that smoke I see? What's going, where's my kids? How come, no, wait a minute, what happened? You left your family unprotected. The enemy came in and robbed you, has them captured. And at this point, all 600 men, oh gosh, I got to read this. So now we're in, if I can get there fast. We're in 2 Samuel 20, um, 30. What's that? Um, what book? Okay. Second Samuel. Oh, it's First Samuel. You're right. Thank you. That was a test. You're the only one who passed, Marlene. That's amazing. Oh, Marlene goes up a notch on that one. Thank you. Okay. So in chapter 30, the Amalekites had come. They attacked. Then David in verse 4. David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they could... They had no more power to weep. Have you ever seen a man cry that hard? When my dad died at 60, his older brother came to the funeral and wept so loud, so bitterly. I had to leave the room. I, I hurt for my uncle so bad. I couldn't see him like that. And so here these men are crying for the wives and kids, and, and uh, then they turn on David. So this is what happens in verse 6. Now, David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. What people? 600 soldiers who were in debt, distressed, and all bummed out. Okay, let's kill him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. So David strengthened himself, encouraged himself. Now, you're probably familiar with that verse. Are you familiar with the surrounding, the backdrop of when he encouraged himself. To me, up to this point in his life, this is as low as it gets. He's never been this low. He's never disappointed this many people. He's never let down his family like this. Now people want to kill him, and they're able to. It's at that point, after this long ride, 25 miles, after 600 men are ready to kill him, I got to get it alone with God. And I'm going to encourage myself. I'm going to strengthen myself. How? What's left? David, you're on a total backslide. You're a murderer. You're full of bloodshed. You've killed babies. I mean, come on. What are you thinking? I'm thinking prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. You ever see when we sang that this morning? You had a rough week this week, a rough month, a rough year? prone to wander. Do you ever notice that temptation seems to come in waves? Right now, it's not wave season on the North Shore, so we have Lake Pacific out there. Give it a couple months, and we'll get these swells. And when the swell shows up, out of nowhere, all of a sudden there's these waves and waves, and then it goes flat again. To me, that's how temptation is. And you might be in maxo season where it's 40-foot waves relentlessly and your song is prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the God I love. Why would I leave you? Why? This is stupid of me. I'm a dumb sheep. Because you're the one with the answers. You're the one with the love. You're the one with, you created me. You know what? I, why would I drift? Take my heart. See, here's the surrender. Here's how you encourage yourself from the Lord. Here's how you strengthen yourself from the Lord. Lord, I am not here because I've been so good. I'm here because I've bottomed out. I have backslidden horrendously. Take my heart. Take and seal it. Is it could you put saran wrap around my heart so nothing gets out? I want the love and the joy and the peace to stay inside. I don't want to drift anymore. Can you, can you do something? Now, do you ever do this? When you picture, take my heart, do you ever picture you're giving your heart literally? Like, we have this silver platter at our house. It's a big rectangular thing. It has a handle on each side. And, and so often when I sing, here's my heart, Lord. I'm presenting him my heart. And I have the one handle. He grabs the other handle, but I don't let go. You ever do that? Now it's a wrestling match. I want you to take it. You know, half of me wants you to take it. More than half wants to keep it. But the heart of surrender, the heart that wants to encourage itself in the Lord, take it. Take it. So in 2 Samuel, he gets the uh, prayer. In verse 30, he inquires of the Lord, what should I do? And then the second half of that verse, the Lord's promise, go. You'll, require, you'll um, get everything back. Okay, so David has a decision. What David does next determines what he believes in God. He could look around and say, you know, God, I would, but there's 600 soldiers ready to kill me. I don't have the authority. I, they won't follow me. He could come up with excuses. Lord, I'm tired. We just rode back 25 miles. I, I've been weeping till I can't cry anymore. He could come up with all that. Or he could say, the God who cannot lie just made a promise he cannot break. And so David went in verse 9. And it ultimately, oh, it was a long fight. Looks like it was like 24 hours. It says he recovered all. He recovered all. Okay. How does this apply to us? How do I have a prayer and then God has a promise? I'm not talking about some tricky formula. I'm just seeing a pattern that when we pour out our heart, in prayer, God gives us his promise. So Jesus said this in Matthew 7. He goes, you know, ask, seek, knock. You know, so the acronym for that is ask. So this is what, here's Jesus. And if you're familiar, in the original language, he's saying, please ask, please ask. Because I want to I answer that prayer. So then here's the promise part. He says, look, if you ask, you will receive. God promises. If you find, if you seek, you're going to find. If you knock, that door will be opened. How about this one for an invite to prayer? Jeremiah heard this in chapter 33 of his book. Call to me, God said. I will answer you. What a promise. I will answer you. And I'll show you great and mighty things which you don't know. Okay, so what's your prayer this week? We're going to go through some prayers, some promises. See if See how we're doing. You go, you know what? I need peace. I need God's peace. 
If we're following this, remember the nobleman, got right down to it. Lord, this is what I need. I need your peace. Well, here's his promise. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, everything, by, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Like, I am so thankful I get to bring this to you, Lord. Let your requests be made known to God. And here's the promise, the peace of God. Not the peace of a bank account or the peace of relationships or, or the peace of a bottle of wine. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It doesn't make sense. It will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So let the wrestling match begin. You know the verse. You know your need. Will you settle with it? Okay, Lord. I'm calling on the Prince of Peace. I need your peace. Wrestling match is over. What you need? How about I need God's provision? <laughs> we ran into stuff. Can you believe gas prices? Can you believe, you know, meat prices? I'd take my wife out, but <laughs> no, I still take her out. Don't. But, you know, it's getting crazy. Crazy. And then, Lord, I, I, I want to do this or that. I, I'd love to own a house. I'd love to pay rent. I'd love to do, and I need your provision. And so here, God's promise, my God. Now this is to people who kept giving their first fruits in spite of saying, I don't know what's going on. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So let the wrestling match begin. Will I continue with my first fruits? Or am I going to say, no, sorry, I don't see it. Let the wrestling match begin. How about this? I need victory over temptation because the swell is here. The waves are here. They're relentless. I have seasons of victory. I have seasons of defeat, Lord. I want more victory. And God says this in Romans 16. Be wise in what is good. Be simple or be innocent in what is evil. And the God of peace. Oh, we know him will soon crush Satan under your feet. All right, how about this one? I need his wisdom. Lord, I, I am faced with, I have a great problem. I'm faced with these three different options. I don't know, I have deadlines coming up. What am I supposed, I need your wisdom. So James 1 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, that includes me and includes you. You need wisdom? Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally, without reproach. He doesn't say, yeah, you know, you blew it last week. No wisdom today. No, it's without reproach. And it will be given to him. He promises that God, who cannot lie, makes promises. I'll give you, I'll give you wisdom. So now, what I do next determines what I really believe about God. I prayed it. I don't feel anything, but start walking. He's going to give me the wisdom when I need it. Here's another one. I need his guidance. I need his guidance. Should we stay in Hawaii? Should we move? Should we do this ministry? Should we shut this other thing down? I need guidance. So Psalm 32, I love this psalm. He says in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll guide you with my eye. Like, I got my eye, and oh, no, 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 turn right, turn right. Okay, keep going. 
take a left. He's guiding you with his eye, special interest. So what you do next determines what you really believe about God. What's your prayer this week? How about fruitfulness? Lord, I've been, I've been doing this for a while. I don't see any fruit. I'm getting very discouraged. So here's what he promises, Galatians 6, 9. Let's not grow weary, meaning there's a natural inclination. Let's just grow weary. Let's give up. He goes, don't grow weary. Well, doing good, it's not like you're doing bad. You're doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. What a promise. What a promise. Here's another one. <laughs> is this practical or what? You know what, Lord? I need to know if this is worth it. I, I don't see much fruit again. Or, you know, nothing's happening. I, I, I see what the world's doing. You ever read Psalm 73? Where he's going, I wish I was like the drug dealers. They got the fancy car. They got a lot of food in their fridge. I'm kind of envious of them. So is this lifestyle of self-denial and following Jesus, is it worth it? And this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, tone of voice, my beloved brethren. Tone of voice, I love you. I want God's best for you. Be steadfast, immovable. Don't let this shake you. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. I look at my life this past week. Was it abounding in the work of the Lord? Always abounding. Knowing, this is your answer, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So is it all worth it? Yes, it's worth it. Now, here's, here's another one. We're almost done. You ever pray this? I, I, I want God's nearness. I, I feel the screen door effect. You know, like God's on the outside on the, on the deck and there's a screen door and, and yeah, we're close, but there's this thing that's robbing us of intimacy and just, I want to be near. And this is what James promises. You draw near to God, take a step. He'll draw near to you. And at this point, you go, what you do next determines what you really believe about God. You're going, okay, this is his promise. I'm feeling like David felt with all those people mad at him and backslidden and not worthy to even pray. But I'm going to draw near. Last one. Oh, no, second one. I need his forgiveness. Who doesn't? So in this one, we have 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, it's a big if. Yeah, it's, I'm not offering you excuses, Lord. I'm confessing sin. He's faithful. What? He, he'll do exactly what his word promises. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this one, I need God's love. You know, you can operate in this world. You can have the friends, the bank account, the contacts. You can have it all. You can have a million gazillion likes, social media, but without God's love. So this is what Jeremiah heard. Can you imagine? What if God's, hey, have I ever told you, I love you with an everlasting love. There was really no beginning. There's definitely no end. 
And therefore, with loving kindness, I've drawn you. So I didn't draw you with a whip. I, I didn't draw you with a trick. I draw you, drew you in, in loving kindness. So we're closing now. We're going to have some, some worship, but what's your need this week? I'm not making God some genie in the sky, but he's drawing you with love. He's asking you to draw near, and he'll draw near. He's saying, pray. Offer that prayer. He'll offer that promise. Let's close in prayer.